Hi, everybody. My name is Angie, and I'm an alcoholic. First of all, I'd like to thank Marlene, who has just been awesome and, and has uh, most certainly stayed in touch, and uh, the committee for um, inviting me to come. I, uh, I'm really pleased to be here. The speakers have been amazing. Of course, Jack and uh, Kathy, I've loved her for years, who gave our Al-Anon talk. If you weren't here, you really, really missed a treat. And uh, I'm just really, really glad to, uh, to be here. Uh, one of the things that I've worked on in my sobriety is my fear of talking in front of a bunch of white people. <laughs> So I wanted to thank you, Winnipeg, <laughs> for bringing that fear all back to me. It's, it's very clear to me now. Gord, I, I just, I loved him and, and his little uh, beat there that, uh, that he did and his little song he did. That was awesome. I, uh, I, I love enthusiasm and Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I believe when the book says that we're, we are not a glum lot and that our laughter uh, can make for usefulness and cheerfulness. And I truly, truly believe that. I believe that we've cried enough. we cried enough. And uh, when I found out it was okay for me to have a good time in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been having a good time ever since. Um, now, I need to tell you that I'm a lover of Alcoholics Anonymous. The buck stops here for ANGP. I don't have anywhere else to go. Should I leave here, I have nowhere else to go. And I need to tell you that I don't want anywhere else to go. Because here in Alcoholics Anonymous, where I found people who got me. You guys get me. My biological family, they don't get me, but you guys get me, and I'll be forever grateful for that. I'm from Greenville, South Carolina, and back home we lived in a little white house on a red dirt road. We got our water out of wells. We took baths in steel tubs. We ate, watermel we ate uh, buttermilk and uh, cornbread on a regular basis, and uh, we picked uh, blackberries for fun, and I need to tell you that I have not done any of those things recently. <laughs> and, uh, not a one. Uh, I had flaming red hair and freckles growing up, and nobody else in my family did. And imagine that. And uh, my brother, you know how brothers can be, he informed me that the reason why I looked the way I looked was because the mailman was my daddy. So uh, whenever I saw the mailman coming, I was like, Daddy! And, <laughs> and I run up to him, and, and he put his arms around me and tell me how cute I was. And, and thank God for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship and stuff. I found out that that turned out to be a little pattern for me, actually, that... Uh, <laughs> you just put your arms around me and told me how cute I was We were basically married at that point <laughs> You know, and six months down the road I'm going, now what did you say your last name was again? <laughs> so uh, we, uh, we stayed down south for a little while And I'm from a family of Baptist ministers And uh, we stayed down south for, for a little while My dad got transferred up to Cincinnati And, and, and he moved us up there And when, when he got to Cincinnati He uh, had been traveling back and forth Trying to find us a place to live And in the process he found himself a little girlfriend And you know, he got with her and that left my mother. He still brought us to Cincinnati, but it left my mother to raise my brother, my sister, and myself. And I need to tell you that when I got sober, my mother was my biggest problem. I truly felt like if she would have just treated me the way that she treated my brother and sister, that I would not be in this predicament. I am sitting at meetings going, hi, my name's Angie and I'm an alcoholic. See, it was her fault. And I need to tell you that thank God for the big book. Thank God for the steps, you know, and that I'm aware today that this is a disease of perception. Because when I look back over my life, my mother was not somebody who put her arms around me and told me that she loved me on a regular basis. But what you've taught me, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that love is an action. And when I look at my mother's actions, my mother loved me in a huge way. As we speak, my mother is struggling with mental illness. And it's been one of the hardest things to watch. You see... But it's only because of you guys that I can be there for my mother because, see, what you taught me 
was that my mother came into this world with her own set of problems that had absolutely nothing to do with me. And what you ladies have done and what you men have done in Alcoholics Anonymous is that you taught me how to love my mother and how to be there for my mother. See, because it's real easy for me to come into Alcoholics Anonymous and empty ashtrays and shake people's hands and put my arms around them and hug them and tell them that I love them. But see, it's, are you doing it at home? Because I don't know about you, the first few years of my uh, recovery, I was saying some spiritual stuff and going home and we were duking it out at home. <laughs> I hadn't got quite to practicing those principles in all my affairs. I practiced in a couple of them, but at home it was off limits. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've, I've, just, I've, I've just learned so much from, from you guys. And, and that's why I say, you know, you, you get me. The direction that I get from the big book is just, it's awesome to me. But I, uh, I love my mother. And it's because of you and what you taught me I'm able to show up for her. Now, I've learned that, you know, my mother, she doesn't understand why you guys would fly me all the way here to hear what I have to say. She doesn't even believe I'm here half the time, half the place. <laughs> she doesn't even believe I'm half the place. I'll call and go, hi, Mom, I'm in Palm Beach. And she goes, I know. <laughs> Palm Beach this week, I know. I'm going to Winnipeg. Winnipeg, right. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I told my sponsor, I said, she never believes me. And, and that's why I love sponsorship, because they just, you know, intuitively, intuitively know how to handle the situation with the best. She said, send her a postcard. <laughs> so I went and got them today. My friend Carrie, she had a, a whole purse full of stamps. I thought that was amazing. And I uh, got those postcards out to my mother. Thank God for my mother. Because in the end, she was the one who, uh, who gave me the most wisest words. And, uh. But my mother, she, she, she was raised in the South, and she cleaned bathrooms for a living, and she didn't want us to do that. And uh, so she, my mother was very, very strong about education. There were certain words in our vocabulary that we couldn't wor use, words like ain't and I'm not gone. We got smacked in the mouth for talking like that. See, my mother, she tried to do the best she could for us, but what she told me was that I would always have a strike against me because I was black. And what I heard, not what she said, but what I heard was that I'll never be better than you. And that's why I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember when I asked my sponsor to become my sponsor, uh, she's a white woman, and, and uh, and I said to her, I said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to sit you down and, and talk to you about some things, you know, because I'm black and stuff. And, you know, I'm a little sensitive, you know, with civil rights and all. So, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, just need to talk to you a little bit. And, uh, and she goes, oh, really? She's from England. She goes, oh, really? Well, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in there where you find out that I cannot sponsor you because I'm white and you're black, please, by all means, bring... If you knew in the room, if they tell you to look it up in the book, it's probably not there, but you'll read the book. You'll definitely read the book. And it wasn't in there. But I read the book. Because when you're looking for something, you've got to stare at everything. I remember I was looking at a, 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 a part in the book where it said, Here's, here lies a Hampshire grenadier. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that must be pertaining to white people. Uh, what is a musket? I don't know. Pot? I know what pot is. <laughs> but you have to go through that book. And I, and, and I learned some things as a result of that. And I could not go back to my sponsor and tell her that she couldn't sponsor me. And what we've done on this journey is that we've grown together. We've grown through our own prejudices. We had to work on some stuff. It wasn't easy, but it's been worth every minute. And my mother decided to put us in Catholic school. 
So now I had a flaming red afro, <laughs> freckles, a white blouse, a plaid skirt, <laughs> blue socks, and black and white spaltings. And I got beat up on a regular basis. It didn't, I mean, I'm here, I, I have no problem telling you, it just didn't look normal. It really didn't. It's just like when people would see me coming down the street, they go, what the heck? And so I had to, you know, I had to fight a lot. I had to fight a lot in school. Well, that's a lot. I had to run a lot. <laughs> that's why I like that movie Forrest Gump. You know what I mean? He could run, and, and I had to do that because there was this girl in my, in, in my school. Her name was Squeaky. Squeaky was like 6'10 in the fifth grade. And she hung out with her little posse, and uh, one day they decided to stone me on the way home from school, and they throwing big, big boulders at me, and I ran in the house, and I told my mother, I said, whoo, I'm glad I made it in the house. Squeaking them was stoning me, and my mother, whenever she sounded like this, I knew it was trouble. She goes, you know, Angela, at some point, you got to learn how to take care of yourself. I want you to go out there, and you, I want you to stand up to her. I said, you want me to do what? <laughs> she said, I want you to go out there and stand up to her. You stay in here and get this butt whooping that I'm going to give you. Now, I knew what my mother's felt like, and I only knew what Squeaky's appeared to be. <laughs> so I went out to her, and I said, my mother said I'm supposed to fight you. She said, well, come on then. So I drew my little alcoholic fists up, <laughs> and I closed my eyes as tight as I could, and I reached up. <laughs> oh, man, I got it right here. Oh, it was the happiest day of my... Are some of you guys applauding violence? <laughs> what in the world? And I hit her, but see, I got this thing called alcoholism that, that helps me remember what I should forget and forget what I should remember. And I forgot the, the fact that she almost beat me to death, but I remembered that I hit her, and that started my uh, uh, boxing career, actually. And uh, when I got sober, you know, I was an angry woman. I'm sure that you can't tell that by now, but hey, when I got sober, I was angry, angry little girl. And uh, I tell everybody, hey, <laughs> you better ask somebody about me. I've hurt people. And my sponsor would just go, oh, really? Yeah, you've hurt people. Ooh. And, uh, and I got beat up in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I just can't fight. That's the bottom line. And uh, so uh, uh, my mother had ended up uh, uh, getting a better job. She worked at his, as a waitress at this restaurant called Frisch's for a long time. And then she got a better job where she started working for this company called Avon. And, and uh, she uh, came and got me from school one day, and it was my 12th birthday, and she took me to this neighborhood, and she showed us showed me our new house and it was a, it's, a, it's a red brick house it still sits my mother still lives there and it's long driveway and it sat back and it was in an all-white neighborhood so from the age of uh, 13 to probably 19 I wasn't even black no more I uh I listened to Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band and my favorite girl group was Heart and uh the first concert I ever went to was Led Zeppelin 1979 I was at the Ted Nugent Foreigner concert. Foreigner was singing Feels Like the First Time. You know it. I have waited a lifetime. Spent my time so foolishly. And he said, it feels like the first time. It feels like the very first time. And I remember I looked around the Coliseum. I didn't see one black person. I said, man, I am bad. It's I said, they scared to come down here, but I'm here. What, 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 And from that day on, I became a legend in my own mind. <laughs> you couldn't tell me nothing. When I walked into a room, stuff just happened. 
Not that it really did, but I thought it did. And I hung around with these five girls, five white girls. They were allowed to drink at home. I couldn't believe it. They could drink at home. Their parents said, her mother said, Rebecca, <laughs> I love this white girl, bro. She listen, Rebecca. <laughs> Your father and I have been talking and we feel that if you're going to drink, we would rather you do that at home. And I said, what did your mother just say? And she goes, oh yeah, we're allowed to drink at home. I thought that was the closest family I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they just drank and, you know, smoked pot with their, and I thought, man, I remember going home to my mother going, you, you mind if I have a beer? <laughs> she said, not in this lifetime. And, uh, and, and, and so I hung out with these girls and, uh, you know, they just did whatever, whatever they wanted to do. And, and I'm well aware of the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I don't struggle with that at all. There's, there's a couple of drugs in my story. So just breathe. A couple. I know some of you old timers. Well, talk about drugs here. <laughs> you can't be here if you talk about drugs. It's just AA. Y'all know them. Them the ones you just want to go up to them and go, crack! <laughs> you just want to run up to them and go, marijuana! Heroin! But they're around, but there's some, you know, hey. There's some in my story, and, and if you have a problem with it, where's Marlene? There she is over there, go run to her. Because if you come to me, I'm going to hurt your feelings, so just go over there to her. And it'll, it'll, it'll save us all so much time. So much time. So I hung out with these girls, and one day they had, you know, offered me a couple little pills, and, you know, they told me to take one. You know how many I took. Two. And, uh, uh, and it was strawberry mescaline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Apparently they had some here at one time. Yeah. I knew you guys were really nice for a reason. <laughs> Everybody's colorful. But, um... You know, I took the strawberry mask, and, and then they decided that they wanted to go and get something to eat at McDonald's, and, uh, and so we pulled into McDonald's, and uh, it began to hit me. Yeah. And I began to get the feeling of just skating right along. Just everything was just... So we got to this little yellow box. You know, it's some little guy in there, you know what I mean? He keeps asking me, what you want? What you, I said, no, what do you want, buddy? What do you want? And I knew he was only about this big, so I couldn't fight, but I could take him. I knew I could take him, and uh, I got up to the next window, and, uh, you know, they were, you know, trying to take my money and stuff, so I had to swing on sister a couple times, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, then I got up to the next window, and he's pushing bags at me, and I'm pushing them back in, and, you know, it's just quite the struggle. So there's a reason why I don't do drugs. I get arrested. And, um... And so, uh, you know, I'm up at the window, I'm tussling with the guy with the bags and everything, and, uh, you know, they call the police, as they should, as the traffic began to back up around and up the street. And uh, so the police officer comes, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and he goes, ma'am, what's your name? But it sounded like this, ma'am, what is your name? I was like, oh, man, I'm going to jail, I can already tell. And uh, he asked me my name, and I told him it was, you know, Luke Skywalker, and, uh, and you know, they don't go too good for, self, for, for that falsification stuff, and... Uh, 
And, and so he looked at my clothes and my car wouldn't start and he looked in the car and he goes, ma'am, uh, in uh, America, when we want our cars to go, we, we put them in drive. And so he pulled me over and he called my parents because I'm on my way to jail. And uh, I go over to the jail, he called my parents and they said, uh, yeah, we got your daughter down here in jail. And my mother said, well, make sure she's warm and hung up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so I didn't, I didn't really have that enabling mother who, uh, you know, was like, I'll be there in just a few minutes. <laughs> Tell her I love her. No, she didn't do that. She said, make sure she's warm and uh, we'll see her whenever. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, I, I just, I've had a very interesting growing up because I've, um, I've been singing since I was three. So I've always, music has always been a part of my deal. And, and, and you know, I don't know about you guys, you hear a song, you automatically go back to it. And, and uh, uh, my friend Rebecca came over to my mother's house and she had a little brown bag and it was Boone's Farm Apple Wine. She had a bottle and she gave me a bottle and she said that her, her uh, uh, brother had uh, schooled her in the art of chugging. And she said that we had to turn the bottle up, we had to drink it as much as we could, and as long as we could. And that's what I did. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, what happened to Rebecca was totally different than what happened to me. Because as I drank that alcohol, and as it began to hit my system, my feet got hot. <laughs> and this feeling started to rise slowly to the top of my head. I have based relationships on the way that alcohol made me feel that first time. If you could make me feel like that, we were together. I didn't care who you were, man, woman, it didn't matter. If you could make me feel the way that first drink did, we were good to go. We were good to go. And, uh, and, and, and I'm like the book talks about. From the time that I started drinking, alcohol became my mask. As I drank, I no longer had a call or a shot on my life. I didn't go to school. I'm not one of those alcoholics who went to school and who went to college. I wasn't one of those people. When I drank and it hit me, I drank. And I continued to drink until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you what, I, uh, uh, all my teachers used to tell me this. They'd say, Angie, I know some of you guys have heard this. They'd say, you got potential. Don't you hate that? You got potential. Why can't you just, my parents, I mean, just the look on their face when they would say, why can't you just do this? Why can't you just do this? Your sister does it, your brother, why can't you do it? My son has the very same answer today that I had then. I don't know. I don't know. I questioned my drinking early on. Early on. I lived to drink. Everything I did, I drank. I didn't really do, you know, marijuana a little bit, but whenever I smoked it, I just smoked it and ate everything in the freezer that had been there for 10 years. You know what I mean? And, you know, my response to everything was, wow. Yeah, Angie, your hair is on fire. Wow. So I didn't really do that. And uh, alcohol was, was my thing. And uh, My dad had got me a job at a recording studio, and, uh, and I was in the, uh, if you're an artist like I am, uh, you know, you always dream that somebody's going to hear you and they're gonna discover you. And then, uh, you know, you'll be rich. That's how I saw it anyway. And I was working at this recording studio and I was in the bathroom and uh, I was singing. And I came out and there was this tall guy standing there. And he said, was that you singing? And I said, well, yes it was. He said, I can make you famous. I said, really? He said, yeah, I can. He said, but you gotta come to Las Vegas. And I looked at him and I knew that this was God's will. And I went back and I had a family meeting and I told my family, I will be back for you. 
once I get my Grammy, I shall return. And my father, he always kept things real simple. He just look at me and go, something is wrong with you. <laughs> that was his answer to everything. And, and, uh, and my father's telling me, Angie, please don't go. And my little sister, who I love dearly, is saying, Angie, don't go. And I went. And at the age of 17, I was in Las Vegas singing in casinos and opening up for some of the biggest people and having the time of my life. And I'm drinking and alcohol is flowing freely. And at this time in Las Vegas, there was a street called Fremont. And boy, I tell you, it was jumping. And I was in and out of casinos and just drinking and having a good time and then strange things began to happen. I began to not remember doing stuff from the night before. And I'm drinking and I'm blacking out and I didn't hear about a blackout until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I truly believe that if you party that didn't remember what you did the night before, you had one heck of a time. <laughs> it wasn't until I got here that I really found out what, black, what blackouts were. And uh, so I'm in Las Vegas and I'm out there with this guy that I don't know and uh, I'm singing and he's got a little heroin problem that I didn't know about. And, uh, so I'm out there and I'm starting to lose jobs because uh, when I drink, I'd like to tell you I can tell you what happened. But when I drink, I don't know what's going to happen next. And, uh, you know, I didn't hear until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that it was the first drink. See, I, what I heard, I don't know about you, but what I heard is, it's just, don't drink the third one, Angie. Don't drink whiskey. Drink beer. Don't drink wine. Smoke weed before you drink. <laughs> you know, all of the recipes, the recipes that it talks about in the book. But I never heard that it was the first one that got me in trouble. And while I'm out there with this gentleman, he's got his little heroin problem, he introduces me to it, and so at the age of 18, I'm shooting heroin intravenously and drinking alcohol on a regular basis. And I'm out here with a man that I don't know, and we begin to lose things, and he becomes abusive. And he begins to beat my butt on a regular basis. And you know what? People ask me some time after, say, why didn't you just leave? That's a strange question to ask a woman who's in an abusive relationship. I want to. But I couldn't. I'm out here with this man. I don't know nothing about him. My parents have told me, we don't want you to go. And I went anyway. And so I'm out there with him. I'm drinking. We're losing. We're homeless. One day he goes, comes and gets me and told me that he wants me to uh, give him a ride to the store. And I gave him a ride to the store. And he went into the store and he shot and he killed the owner. And he robbed the place. And when he came out, see, for a long time I couldn't tell you that in Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't until I got here... Well, I heard you guys say that you're only as sick as the secrets that you keep. And I didn't want to be judged by you because I was already judging myself harshly. And it wasn't until my sponsor, thank God for sponsorship, because it wasn't until my sponsor told me, Angie, if you were drinking, did you think that that would have happened? And no. And so now I'm on trial, listening to this woman tell me what I've done to her family, listening to her daughter say that we took her father away. And on any given day, y'all, thank God for the steps and the traditions and sponsorship because on any given day, I can feel bad about myself about that. But see, for me, for somebody like this alcoholic, see, I've got to have incentives as to why I stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the reasons why I stay in AA is because if I drink again, I cannot tell you what's going to happen. I think I know. And so I just stay. This gentleman is still in prison as we speak with a life sentence with no chance of parole, and here I am in Winnipeg. I don't know why God works the way he does, but the one thing I know, if I don't know anything else, that it is only by God's grace 
that I'm your speaker today. And I got put out of the state of Nevada. They gave me a floater out. The governor, letter. It says, you can never, ever come back here. And I haven't found it necessary to go back to Las Vegas. <laughs> I don't even watch stuff on TV about Las Vegas. You know what I mean? Because I think they're watching me that way. So I just, I don't bother. And uh, I came back to Cincinnati and, and I promised my family, okay, that's it. That's it. I'm not going to do anything anymore. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. One of the reasons why I don't give people that drink again a hard time is because every single time I said I was going to stop drinking, I meant it from the bottom of my heart. I just didn't know that I was powerless over alcohol and that it dictated to manage my life. But every time I said that to my parents and every time I said that to my sister, I meant it from the bottom of my heart. But to the untrained eye, we appear liars. We appear liars. And I remember just having a hard time understanding why it was that when I said I wasn't going to do it, I turned around and I did it. And I came back to Cincinnati and I said, that's it. I can't do it no more. And it lasted all of two weeks. And I was drinking again. And I started hanging around downtown Cincinnati. And uh, that there was a, a restaurant down there where all the pimps and the prostitutes hung out. And my brother and sister, I went on a, a city ride on, a, on the bus. And uh, we got to the corner where this restaurant was. And my little sister looked over there and she said, boy, you couldn't pay me to go over there. And my brother looked over there and he said, shoot me neither. And I remember thinking, I'm going over there tomorrow. <laughs> and I started driving the bus down from Tri-County all the way downtown on a regular basis hanging out in the worst of bars and hanging out with people that today I know I wouldn't even have coffee with. Just stuck down there, my friends. I was missing from my family for years. Do you hear what I'm saying? And I was in the same city. I was in the same city. I hung out with guys whose nickname was No Neck and Greasy Feet and Tie-Dye. Those were my friends. Let me tell you what my friends did. They taught me how to put on a girdle and go into a department store and roll up outfits and stick them in the girdle put my coat on and walk out and take them to some man and sell it for the remarkably low price of. And eventually I started getting arrested. And my friend, you know, greasy feet and them, they never came to see me. They never came to see me in jail. And I got out of jail, and this is the story, is that I would go to jail, I would get out of jail, I would drink, and I would drink and I would go back to jail. And I would go to jail and I'd do some time and I'd go back to jail. And the third time I went to jail, I took a physical at the Justice Center and I found out that I was pregnant. And I, um, <clears throat> the only reason why I didn't lose my mind on that prison bed was because my baby was born inside of me. And every single day I rubbed my stomach and I said, I'm going to do the right thing. When you're born, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to be a mother. I'm going to be a good mother. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. But I didn't know that I had alcoholism and that it dictated what sort of parent I would be. And when I had my son, he, my parents came and got him. I had to call my family and they came up to the prison and they got my little boy and I remember it like it was yesterday. And he had on this little blue snap-up suit and he had a little blue cap on his head. And I remember I looked at him because I had to see my child leave through a little slit like this. And I remember I looked at my child and I said, I'm gonna get my act together and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And when I got out of prison, my son was four years old. And I remember being on, the, the seven, on 71 on the Greyhound bus going back home, and all I could think about was seeing my baby. All I could think about is just going and putting my arms around my baby and doing everything that I needed to do so that I could be a mother. Because I wanted desperately to be that more than anything else. And you know what happened? I got to the Greyhound bus station, 
And suddenly the thought crossed my mind, if you're new in the room, it's in more about alcoholism. My sponsor told me that if it's in italics, it's really, really important. And if you're new in the room, what that says is that a man went to a, a, a bar, a restaurant about a concern he once had, and further down on the page, it says suddenly the thought crossed his mind that he thought he could put a little whiskey in his milk. He sensed he wasn't being a bit too smart. That's what happened to me. I got to the Greyhound bus station. Can I have some Kleenex before I electrocute myself up here? <laughs> Thank you very much. I need all I can get. It's going to be a long one, y'all. Where was I at? Ah! And suddenly the thought crossed my mind that I hadn't had a drink in a while. And I went up to the Red Horse Bar and, and I walked in and I had a drink. And, the next time I saw my son, he was 10. You see, I don't struggle with the powerfulness of the disease of alcoholism. When I put it in my system, as much as I want to do, I can't do it. And you know what? When I first got sober, I was sitting in meetings and I would hear people say, and they cried and shed tears about their kids. And I remember hearing a guy say at a meeting one time, you didn't care about your kids when you were drinking. Man, that's the worst possible thing you can say to somebody. Because there were many given days that I drank because I couldn't understand why I couldn't do it. Why can't I do this? Why can't I take my butt home and be a mother as much as I wanted to? And so here I am. I got a son. He's gone. I'm drinking and I'm hanging out. Doing things that I got to do to get money so that I can drink. And I find out I'm pregnant again. The difference between the pregnancy with my daughter and the one with my son was, my son, I was in prison, and I got prenatal care. And with my daughter, I didn't get a day of it. I drank every single day with my daughter growing inside of me and did all kinds of other substances. And thank God my daughter is okay. Thank God she's okay. But when you give a baby up for adoption, they throw this black-like thing over you. And when the baby comes out, they snatch her and they go the other, the other direction and you can't see her. But I saw her. I saw her. And they already had the adoption ready. They were going to take her. I said, take her. I can't raise her. And my parents found me and they called the hospital and they said, Angie, bring her home. We'll take care of her. You bring her home. And I got on the Greyhound bus with that little baby. And I ain't know nothing about babies. And I just said, please, God, don't let her cry. Because I ain't know what to do. And she was so little because I didn't have any prenatal care. You see, she was little. And I get to the Greyhound bus station with my little girl. And her name is Whitney. And my dad's sitting there in his pickup truck. And my mother gets out the other side. And they just come and they take her out of my arms. And they say, Angie, we got her here. And I said, what am I supposed to do? And my, mother, my mother and my father said, we don't know what you're going to do, but she don't deserve it. And they drove off with my baby. And from that point on, I drank as if there was no tomorrow. It didn't matter whether I lived or died. I just drank. And one night, I was in a shooting gallery, drinking alcohol and shooting dope, and somebody shot ice water into my vein. And it was the closest thing I ever felt to die. 
And I left that bar and I walked 17 blocks because by now I'm living at a, a, a home for wayward women down on the banks of Cincinnati's River. And I walked 17 blocks down there. And I get there and see, I'm a believer in angels. I don't know about you, but God has always placed somebody in my way. And I get to that door and it's a little blonde white woman standing there and she said, you know what? You do not have to live like that. And she went up to my room with me and she put a washcloth on my head and she began to tell me about her drinking. She didn't tell me how much she drank, but she told me how she tried to be a mother and she couldn't be. She told me all this stuff and then she asked me if I would go somewhere with her. And if it would have made me feel better, I'd have went anywhere and I said yes. And she took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a clubhouse called 405 Oak Street. And the day that we got there, it was all these white people, kind of like right now. <laughs> it was all these white people. They were sitting on these benches and everybody had white cups. And some guy was singing John Denver songs. And <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was reaching out their hand and they were saying, welcome. And I said, well, at least they're friendly. And I got up the steps, and I was getting ready to go up the steps, and this big biker dude jumped out in front of me and grabbed me, and he goes, Welcome to AA. My name is Squirrel. <laughs> and he wouldn't let me down, and I said, Squirrel, right? Man, you're going to put me down, man. And he put me down, and he smiled at me, and he said, Welcome to AA. And I looked at him, and I was thinking, You have hit an all-time low. <laughs> you are an alcoholic anonymous. And I went in and she said this guy was going to tell his story. I went in and he began to tell his story. And this is newcomer mentality. I sit down and he starts telling his story. And he said he slept under a bridge. And all you guys went, ah-ha-ha, ah-ha-ha, ah-ha-ha. And I said, what the hell is this? And he said, I slept under a bridge. And you guys were like, ah-ha-ha-ha-ha. And I said, man, these white people crazy. <laughs> so I started moving closer to the wall in case this was a contagious in any kind of way. And, uh, and, and then he got finished speaking and you guys rose to your feet and clapped. And then you grabbed hands and I said, look at this shit here. <laughs> and y'all started to pray. And I said, and they hypocrites too. <laughs> around AA for a little while. It wasn't like I had a huge social schedule or anything like that. And, and I stayed around AA and, you know, I was angry and just crazy and, you know, going to meetings and everything was because I was black and, you know, if I didn't get my coffee from the coffee bar, I'd say, it's because I'm black, ain't it? That's why I can't get my black coffee. <laughs> why I got to drink my coffee out of a white cup. Why can't I drink it out of a black cup? My sponsor would go, would you sit down? I'd say, well, I got to make it known now. We ain't going nowhere. We up in here, too. And I was a person at the meeting where there could be a girl, young girl, up to the podium. And she'd go, before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous... <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, I really didn't like black people. <laughs> but now, thanks to God and sponsorship and the fellowship of AA, now I do. 
And I'll be in the audience and I'll say, well, that's good, because we ain't going nowhere. Turn to the people. And my sponsor would say, sit down. <laughs> so I'm telling you, you, you know, you can do it all wrong in here and, and stay sober. You might not get happy, but you, but you can stay sober. And I did it all wrong. Everything was because I would go to eat with these women and these five women, and Patty and Jeannie, and everybody just, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm homeless. And they go, <laughs> well, you just keep coming back. I said, what, the, what does that have to do with me? I don't know where I'm asleep. I don't see anything to laugh. This is some serious business right here. But let me tell you something. I stayed at this clubhouse from morning to the evening. And somebody always let me go to their house to sleep. So if you're new in the room, is there any black people in here at all? Is it? Oh, how you doing? I'm glad to see. I'm going to give you a hug a little later, okay? Me and you get together. We're going to talk about these white people, all right? <laughs> so don't you go nowhere. Now, you stay here until I get finished, all right? Now, I won't have no trouble finding you or nothing like that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to stay close, all right? Power to the people. <laughs> so about this time, they start coming into AA with this little crack problem. I know they ain't got no crack in Winnipeg. <laughs> they got crack here? Damn, it's a made its way over here. That's crazy. But they start coming into AA with this little crack problem. And, and they all were skinny and they all weighed the same thing. I said, well, do y'all... I said, well, do y'all all get together and go, you weigh 60 pounds? Do you weigh 60 pounds? I weigh 60 pounds. Come on, let's go to AA. <laughs> Come on, let's go. They can help us. We have 60 pounds. I'm sure they can help us. And so, you know, they were coming in, and they were people of color, and so I, you know... Told them, you know, come on in here, don't say nothing, because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe they'll come up with a Crackaholics Anonymous, but right now, you at AA. So sit over there and don't say nothing, and I'll sponsor you. <laughs> oh, and I was just insane. Insane. These poor people. I had to make amends to them. I was terrible. Every time they moved, I'd say, hey. <laughs> I said, you better stop your ass, gonna smoke crack again. So one day I was sitting in a meeting with a cloud on the horizon and suddenly the thought crossed my mind that probably somebody else needed the seat that I was in in AA. <laughs> I thought of that in 30 minutes. And I called my sponsor and thanked her for going to sponsor university. <laughs> but I was going to move on. And she says, well, I'll see you again if you make it back. I said, well, I don't think I'll need to come back, but uh, thank you anyway. And, so I went to the Wednesday night meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and they asked if it was any AA announcement. <laughs> I said, yeah, look here, people. I'm going to roll on about here. Thank you for the real thick book that you gave me and, uh, you know, all the coffee. And I hope that y'all know that drinking is bad for you. And, uh, you know, those old timers, don't you love them? One of them stands up and goes, well, get out of here then. <laughs> There's people here trying to stay sober. We'll see you if you make it back. I said, you've been talking to my sponsor. And so I left. And I took that book. But see, let me tell you something. 
See, you guys have been talking about God using you as an instrument. And I said, you know what? I think God might be using me as an instrument too. He might want me to go find some black people and bring them into AA. So I took my book, because I knew that step said that I was supposed to carry the message to somebody. And I'm sure it was black people. So I grabbed my book and I walked down the steps and I went to the right and I went down the red road and I got on the number 43 bus and I said, the first black person I see that appear to be drunk, I'm going to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got on the bus and a brother got on and he was staggering a little bit. I said, bingo. <laughs> so he sat down and I slid over next to him on the bus. I said, look here, brother. You been drinking? He said, yeah, I had a little something, something. I said, you might be an alcoholic. <laughs> so he started cussing me out and stuff on the bus. And, 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 you know, I told you, you know, that I'm from a family of Baptist ministers. And, 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 and I told him, I said, you know, uh, the people at the double A club told me that you would probably react like this to my information. So what I'm going to have to do is give it to you the only way that I know how and the only way that you'll be able to hear it. So I opened up the, uh, uh, the book to chapter 5 and I stood up in the aisle of the bus. <laughs> and I said, Rally! <laughs> Did you hear what I said? I said, Rally! Have we seen a person fail who has finally followed our path? Those who do not recover are those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with this. The bus driver said, oh, hell no. <laughs> he said, you got to get off this bus. So I got off the bus, told him he was an alcoholic too. And, uh, and I went down to the bar where I knew it was some black drunks at. And I walked into the Red Horse Bar and they was all dancing, acting like they were having a good time. You know, they were jamming. So I went over and I pulled the plug out the jukebox. I said, black drunks, they got a place for you. It's called the Double A Club. You two never have to drink again. They said, well, what you doing down here? I said, I graduated. <laughs> what I'm doing down here. I'm here to help you. Don't ask me questions. So he said, if you don't plug that jukebox back in, I said, you know, the double A people told me that you would probably react like this to my information. So what I'm going to have to do is give it to you the only way that I know how and the only way that you can receive it. So I opened up the book to chapter five and I climbed up on the bar and I crossed my legs and I said, rally. <laughs> did you see, did you hear what I said? I said, rally. Have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed us? And the bus driver, I mean, the, uh, the, the bar owner said, oh, hell no, you got to get up out of here. So I went outside after they put, locked the door, and uh, I opened up the book uh, to more about alcoholism, and suddenly the thought crossed my mind that I hadn't had a drink in a while, that surely one won't hurt me. And I went back in that bar, and I ordered a shot of gin, and the bartender gave it to me, and 45 minutes later, I was in a crack house. Now, I ain't thought about smoking no crack. Why, that was for the little people. Let me tell you something I learned from that. That any time I stand in judgment of one of God's children, what I've done is I've just placed myself in a position to experience it on some level. It's not up to me. And I, I'll tell you what, everything that you guys told me was going to happen, happened. You said it would get worse. Never better. And it got worse. I did things, y'all, when I was out there that you could have ever told me that I would do. And by the end, I was sleeping outside. I weighed 90 pounds. My hair was matted to my head. I hadn't had a bath in I don't know how long. And I got tired. And I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous June the 20th, 1991. 
And I'll be forever grateful for you people who stuck out your hand to me in spite of what I look like. Because, see, we got to make sure that we don't get too good in Alcoholics Anonymous. That we pay attention to those people who come in and don't look like we think they should. Who may look like they ain't serious about their recovery. And we may judge them. We got to be real careful, Winnipeg, because they could be your next speaker. We got to be real careful. We got to be real careful. So I went back up to that clubhouse, and that same old timer that yelled at me to get out that night was in the coffee bar. And I walked in, that walk of shame. And I walked in, and he looked at me and he said, Angie, you're going to die. And I said, I know. I know I'm going to die, and I need you to help me. And he said, I want you to go out there, and I want you to stand at that door, and you greet people. Let me tell you something real strange. I stuck my hand out to people, and a whole lot of people just walked past me. I had that experience here, where I smiled at people, and they just walked past me. See, we got to be real careful. Because if I was just a new little black girl coming to this convention, I'd have turned around and I'd have walked out the door. I'd have walked out the door. And then some people saw me with my speaker badge. And they look at me and then they looked at I was a speaker. Oh, hi. I said, well, what happened a minute ago before I was the speaker? I'm still the same chick. See, I love alcoholics. It says love and tolerance is our code. It's our code. And as a member, if somebody don't look familiar, and I know that I don't look familiar, get your hand out and welcome. And welcome. So I came back and I did what my sponsor told me to do. And I began to work the steps and she had me look at the first step. And we did some writing on the first step and then she had me look at my insanity. And she told me that there was no way that I could turn my will and my life over to the care of God if I believed that I still had some power in my life. She had me, we did the third step prayer at Oak Street and we got on our knees and prayed. I didn't say a word, she prayed that prayer. And when I got up, she opened up the book and she showed me the fourth step in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and she said, I'll give you two weeks to get it done. Thank God that she didn't let me do it and I'll get ready to do it. She gave me a date to have it done. And I did it to the best of my ability, my first one. And I shared that with my sponsor and then she began to share her stuff with me. And what I realized is that as sick as I thought I was, I hadn't created anything. That somebody else had done it before me. And what happened to me when I did my fourth and fifth step was exactly how it talks about it in the book in the last paragraph of how it works. It says that you will have digested some chunks of truth about yourself. And then I told her, I said, I think I need to work on six and seven. She said, you don't need to work on nothing. She said, you get up every morning and you say that prayer. And I've done that on a regular basis. And I made that list. And the biggest amends that I had to make for one was to my daughter and to my son because I gave them away like they were a pair of jeans. And I'll tell you about them in a minute. I had stole all the meat out of my sister's freezer and I had set up a meat stand. <laughs> and I told her that her boyfriend did it and she kicked him out. <laughs> when in essence it was me. I had stole all her money and sold all of her leather coats. I had done everything to my sister, my little sister. And she let me come and live with her. And I went back to make amends to my sister. And she was not as loving as you would think, but my sponsor told me that I had to do it anyway. And I'll tell you what, in this process, I just do what my sponsor tells me to do. I don't always like it, but I do it.
But let me tell you, after I made my amends, what happened? My daughter at the age on her 18th birthday called me. Because see, I lived in the same city with my kids and I couldn't see them. I don't know if you know what that's like. But I wanted to see them on a regular basis and I couldn't see them. I wanted to see them bad. Do you hear what I'm saying? I wanted to see them bad and I couldn't see them. So what I would do is I would go to my daughter's soccer game and I would wear a baseball hat and sunglasses. They didn't know I was there. I would go to my son's football games and I would sit at the top of the stadium. He didn't know I was there, but I was there. I had to see him. And on my daughter's 18th birthday, she called me and said that she wanted to see me. And I went and I picked up my daughter. And we went to the mall. And she spent all my damn money. <laughs> she spent all my money. But my prayer was answered. Because I said I wanted to clean off my side of the street when it came to my children. But let me tell you about my daughter. She's a beautiful, beautiful girl. And man, if I got what I deserved in Alcoholics Anonymous, my kids, if my kids would never speak to me again. But she began to call me. She didn't want to make waves in the family, you see, because I wasn't allowed to be around my family. They asked me to step out of their lives. Step out of your kids' lives and let them have the same opportunities that you had. And so I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous, not seeing my kids, not seeing my family, being around the holidays, knowing that everybody was flying in and at home in my apartment by myself. Last Christmas was the first Christmas that I spent with somebody. The first Christmas that I spent with somebody. See, stuff still happens in sobriety. I wanted to see my kids so bad, but for the first time in my life, I had to make a decision that wasn't based on me. I made a decision that was in the best interest of my children. And I left it alone. See, that's what you guys told me to do. You said, leave it alone. When you're able to get them back, God will send them to you. And sure enough, my daughter came back. And my daughter called me. She's in school in Louisiana. She attends Grambling State. She's a good kid. When Katrina hit, she was in Louisiana. And I didn't hear from her for six days, but I couldn't call my family and ask them anything, you see. I didn't hear from her. And when I did hear from her, she said, Angie, I'm scared. I said, it's going to be all right. See, you guys told me that it's going to be all right. She said, would you just say that prayer that you always say to me? She said, I need to hear it. And that prayer is, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will and take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help of that power and that love and that way of life. She wanted to hear that from me. You gave me that. And I passed it on to her. My son, oh yeah, and, she, and she's, date, she's dating a white guy. His name's Jeremy. Isn't that white for you, Jeremy? Like, where's Josh and Jake? You know what I mean? And uh, she's a good kid, and so is he. My son, who is uh, will be turning 25, and uh, he is uh, he's a rapper. <sighs> he loves to rap. I don't like it. 
but he loves it. But he has a job, though. He's a court reporter. And uh, not too long ago, I was driving in my car, because he always play, calls me and plays his songs for me. And I was driving in my car one day, listening to the radio, and all of a sudden I heard my son's song. I was like, whoa. And not that I liked his music, but you know, rappers buy their mom's houses when they get rich. So I <laughs> figured I better stay in good with him, you know what I mean? And, uh, but I was able to make amends to my son. And, and, and you know, if you're new in the room, in spite of me, I've been able to stay soaked. Things have changed in my life. Like I told you, I didn't go to school. I got my high school, school diploma in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had one, but I had made it in prison. <laughs> it was in my personnel file on my job until I told my sponsor. She told me I had to go tell my boss it wasn't real. And uh, so I went and did that, and he uh, told me that I had to have a high school education in order to work there. And I said, are you going to fire me? And he said, no. I'll give you six months to get a high school education. And so uh, they had this commercial on TV that said, you too can get your high school diploma. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so I, I started ordering the books off of TV, and I'd study the science, and I'd take the test and send it back, and then I'd read the history, and I'd study it, and I'd take the test, and I'd send it back, and then I sent the last test back, and I went and I signed up for um, the GED in Cincinnati, and I took it, and I got a perfect score. Wow. That might not be a lot to some people, but man, to me, that was a miracle. That was a miracle. Because <laughs> I realized without it that I never really quite felt as smart as you. And so I got that in the mail. And when I got it, I opened it up and I held it to my chest and I said, I'm going to college. I said, I'm going to college. So I called the University of Cincinnati. And I went up there and I went into admissions and I said, I want to go to college. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and at this time at the University of Cincinnati, they had incorporated the uh, addiction studies program. And uh, I went into the uh, addiction studies program and I got certified in addiction studies through the University of Cincinnati. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm almost finished and I'll be graduating with my bachelor's in addiction. And then I'm going on to my master's. You see, the sky is the limit. In Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what you guys have taught me. I can do anything as long as I don't drink. And I work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> How much time do I have? I don't have a watch. How much time I got, y'all? Three hours. <laughs> they took about three hours. <laughs> so anyway... Ten minutes? Okay. So anyway, I, uh, I, I've had a great journey uh, in AA. And thank God that you guys love me in spite of me. The belligerent, the militant, the angry. You guys just told me to keep coming back. But then one day somebody told me to stay. They said, why don't you stay and give it a chance? And I've done that. Back home, my grandmother... She used to sit in the rocking chair and she would hum this song. And I didn't know the meaning of it, but I know the meaning of it now. And I'll close with this. Amen.
sing grace. How sweet the, the sound that saves a oh, wretch like me. See, I was, was lost, but now, you can sing it with me, I'm, I'm fine. I was blind, but now, I, I see. I want you to do this. Just hum it. Just hum it. That's nice. That's so nice. God bless you.